The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Reading today will be from Romans chapter 8. If you'd like to join along, starting at verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Starting at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the th- minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set On the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God, to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to worship in your house today, Father, with your people in the beauty of your holiness, Lord. And we're reminded of of our need, the struggles we face every day, Father, Since the last time we gathered, Lord, our need is so great to live a life that's loving and caring for others, Lord, which includes caring for ourselves. We're not worthy of your grace, Lord, that you've given to us to forgive us these things and to to give us the righteousness of your Son. And you care for us and you provide for our needs, Lord. Speak to us again today, Lord. Cause us to hear your words, that our 
affections and our conduct of life bring glory to your name. Lord, so we lift our pastor and messengers all over the world to you, Lord, the under-shepherds that you've given to us. Father, bless his preparation, strengthen his heart, and feed us to strengthen us according to your loving kindness so that we would know and understand that all your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Father, strengthen us to your work. Father, bring glory to your name. And it's in Christ's name, the name of our Lord and Savior that we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bible to Psalm 22. This morning we bring to a conclusion really two things. We have for the last uh, five or six weeks now, I believe it's been six weeks, I've been looking at the main theological issues of the Protestant Reformation, the, the five solas, if you will, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola deo gloria, and today finally solus Christus. And we complete that sort of look in, in sort of a, as a reflection on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation that we celebrated really last week. So. Uh, coming to Psalm 22 and approaching the Lord's table, we appropriately end uh, that look and that piece of a series with a look to the cross of Jesus Christ, who is the, the central feature of the gospel of Christianity. It's the central feature of Christian faith. The central message that defines Christi- Christianity is the cross of Jesus and the reality that it's his work alone on the cross that is able to redeem, to save the human soul. And so that's our task this morning. It also sort of brings to a conclusion uh, the ongoing series that we began back in the beginning of the summer, uh, working our way through selected psalms. Beginning next Sunday, we will move our way back to the New Testament, to the book of James, and uh, start uh, a verse-by-verse study through, uh, through that letter in the New Testament. So uh, gear up for that. Get ready for that. It's going to be, I believe, a wonderful Encouraging journey, completely different than this one through the Psalms, and I think a, a really practical journey for us. But this morning, our task is to, to look to Christ and to look to Psalm 22 and uh, reflect on, on what we find there as a way of preparing our hearts to gather around the Lord's table and share in the Lord's Supper this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 24 and 25, it tells us why we would do such a thing as gather around a table and go through this uh, sort of ceremonial remembrance of the death of Christ on the cross. Paul writes, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup of the, is, the new co- is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why would people like us gather on a moment like this and do a thing such as share in the Lord's Supper? Well, we do it, uh, we're told for two reasons. First, to remember. He said, do this in remembrance of me. It seems that the Lord is quite acquainted with our human frailty and our natural affinity for forgetfulness. And so he knows 
that we need uh, a means by which we can regularly stop and pause from the, the chaos of life and intentionally shut down everything and remember the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and what was done for us there. And so we do this to remember. But we also do what he tells us to proclaim. He says as often as we do this, we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so not only do we remember, but in the very act of doing this, we are, we are displaying the gospel. We are displaying the truth of the most important reality of the most important event that's ever happened in the history of humanity. The Son of God shedding His blood on a cross for the sins of humanity. And so we come to remember and we gather to proclaim. That's why we do this. And it's all about the cross. It's all about the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross is the central feature of Christianity. It is the very heart of the gospel. It is the very heart of the good news because it's on the cross that the sinless Son of God took on the sins of His people and shed His blood for them, paying the price for our sin. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and following. In this The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, Jesus' death on the cross solved mankind's worst problem. Man's worst problem is this. That we are sinners who are separated from our God because of our sin, both by nature and by a conscious choice to rebel. And as a result of that, the wrath of God abides upon us. We, we live under the wrath of God and we are destined for the eternal wrath of God, apart from somebody doing something for us. It's our worst problem. It's the worst problem any human being ever has. And every human being comes into the world with that problem. You see, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Paul says that in Romans, but God said that in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus' death on the cross, He there paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the wage of death. And He did that, John writes, as a propitiation for our sin. That word propitiation is not a word we use all the time, but it simply means as an act that changes God's disposition toward us. That before the cross, we were positioned as God's enemies under His wrath. And because of what Christ has done, uh, He has done it as a propitiation. And and, in a sense, the act itself changed God's disposition toward those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He would look upon us no longer as His enemies under His wrath, but His friends destined for His grace through the work of what Christ did on the cross. It's through the death of Jesus on the cross that men can be reconciled to God. That's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul writes. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, it's for our sake that He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Christ's death reconciled us to our Father. He takes on our sin, becomes our sin, dies for our sin, so that we might take on His righteousness and be reconciled to our Heavenly Father forever, recipients of His grace rather than His wrath. 
And Jesus knew from the very beginning of his life that this was the primary purpose for which he had come, to go to the cross and to accomplish this very thing. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was not confused about why he came. And from the moment he breathed his first breath on planet Earth to the moment he breathed his last breath on planet Earth, there was one mission that was before his eyes all the time, and it was to go to the cross and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did a lot of other things. He healed people. He taught. He did many other things. But those were not the primary purpose for which he came. The primary purpose for which he came was to give his life as a ransom for us, to pay the debt that we owed, so that by faith in him we might be saved, redeemed, reconciled. And the way that that manifests in our life is simply by faith in what Christ accomplished on the cross alone. And that's the only way that men, women, human beings of any flavor shape, size, intellect, can be saved. By faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus and His work alone. There is no other way for men to be saved except through Jesus Christ and His work alone. The Bible makes that message abundantly clear. There should be no confusion on anyone's mind about that matter. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Say this part with me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, the preaching of Peter and the early apostles. Peter cries out, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There is salvation in no other person, no other works. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How many mediators are there between God and men? There's one. Who is it? Jesus Christ and Christ alone. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and following. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is no other Savior but Christ alone. There are no other works except the works of Christ alone on the cross that can save. This was a foundational issue in the Protestant Reformation. You see, in Luther's day, in Calvin's day, in Zwingli's day, the Roman Catholic Church had concocted an ele- uh, this whole elaborate system of priests and sacramental works. And they had sort of foisted upon the people this belief system that there is this grace of Christ 
that can come to you, but it's not mediated through Christ. It is mediated through the church. The church is the dispenser of saving grace. And as you people come and you do your sacramental works, the church then dispenses the grace of Christ to you. It's as though you've got a grace tank and it needs to be refilled every once in a while. So you come to the church and you do your sacraments and the church dispenses grace to top off the tank. It's a system through which they control people's lives from birth to death. You see, you had to be baptized by the church at birth. They had a doctrine of extreme unction, which, which covered all the activities that you needed to do, the good works you needed to do during life, and even beyond life, when you're holding mass for the dead, you're completely dependent upon the church to dispense to you the grace that you need to be saved from birth through life to your death and beyond the grave. And all this system did was obscure the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the reformers argued, the church is not the mediator of God's grace. There is one mediator between God and men, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, not the church. Ulrich Zwingli said it this way. He said, Christ is the only way of salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. Christ has borne all the pain, all of our pain and travail. Hence, whoever attributes to works of penance what is Christ's alone errs and blasphemes God. I mean, that's a direct way of saying. You want to take the work that belongs to Christ and you want to say that we accomplish it through our own works of penance and you're a blasphemer. And he's right. Because salvation is through Christ alone. Solus Christus. It's foundational to all the other solas. We are saved by faith alone. But we're not saved by faith in faith. We're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His works. You substitute the Lord Jesus Christ and His works for anything else, and it's a faith that can't save. If you take away Christ and you put my works in there, it's a false, it's a false faith. A faith that leads to death. We are saved by grace alone, but that grace alone is mediated through Christ alone, not through the church or anyone or anyone else or anything else. It is a salvation that's to the glory of God alone because He alone does it, not us, not anyone else. And He does it through His Son. And so it was a foundational issue of the Reformation. And men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and the other reformers were fighting this system that had, that had foisted a blasphemy among the people and presented it to them as truth. It's also a foundational issue in our day, every bit as much as it was in the day of the Reformation. Make no mistake about that. People are just as confused today, and you might even be able to argue that people are more confused about this matter today than they were in the days of the Reformation. You see, in Luther's day, it was primarily the Roman Catholic Church that had a monopoly on, on the people's minds, and it was one enemy to battle in this fight for truth. In our day, there's lies coming from every direction. There's no singular enemy to go after as far as the doctrine goes. There's false doctrine coming from every single direction outside of the church and from inside of the church, which makes it worse. We're dealing with a culture that's, in, that's entrenched in postmodernism, an ideology that says there is no truth, 
There is no such thing as objective truth. You can't even believe anything is true for everybody or anybody. The only virtue in reality these days is tolerance. Is this idea that we just tolerate any and every thought process or belief system. Because after all, truth is really just a construct of the human mind. So I construct my own truth for me, and that's real and true for me, but your mind constructs your own truth that's true for you. And the only virtue is that I tolerate what you think and you tolerate what I think and nobody knows what's real or what's true because there isn't anything that's real or true. The only thing that matters is what we think. It's really a sophisticated way of making us gods. There is no truth. The only virtue is tolerance and the only sin is certainty. The only real sin, the only real thing that will bring you condemnation in the culture is to step out there and say, there is a truth, and here's the truth, that there's one way for men to be saved. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone. That's not tolerated. That's a sin in our culture because you're proclaiming to know something is true and to tell somebody it's also true for them. And thus we see the hostility. But that's not our biggest problem, really. The biggest problem is the message that's coming from segments within Christianity, underneath the umbrella of Christianity, underneath the umbrella of a church that claims to be founded upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of all the sort of garbage and useless noise that comes out of many Christian churches today, it's hard to believe that there's any lost person who could actually be saved. You want some examples? I knew you did. I'll give you just a few, as much as my blood pressure can handle. Several years ago, there was a Larry King interview. Larry King had a panel, and here's the panel. Max Lucado, Bob Jones, John MacArthur, Bishop Talbert of the United Methodist Church, and a Reverend Michael Manning, a Catholic priest. And I'll give you some excerpts from the interview. Larry King says, John MacArthur, you believe that Muslim people, the Islamic people, are wrong? To which MacArthur says, that's right. And this is not some personal belief of mine. Islam is a false religion. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To which King interrupts. And he says, well, Father Manning, you must believe that also, right? To which Father Manning says, I believe very much that the love of God is strong. Jesus, Jesus loves all people. Jesus died for all people. And I can't imagine he's cut off. King says, you mean he died for Islamic people too? Of course he did, Manning said. And he loves them with a passion. To which he looks at MacArthur and says, you believe that too? I should do a fill in the blank here. What do you think? He says, well, I believe God loves his creatures, his creation, but in the end he's going to condemn to an eternal hell all those who reject his son, Jesus Christ. What followed that was a conversation among the panel in, in which we find that both Bishop Talbert, Bishop Talbert of the United Methodist Church and this Roman Catholic priest were completely open to the possibility that Muslims and people of every other religious faith in the, in the world can be saved. Bishop Talbert said this, I've talked with many Muslim leaders. They are, the ones I've met, very fine people. They are on their way to salvation just as certain as I'm on my way. That's from the Catholic Church. That's from the United Methodist representative. If we want to go over to the Presbyterian Church, USA, you could look no further than 
uh, Shannon Kirshner, who's the uh, pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. An interview with her, uh, an article built off of that in the Christian Post, is entitled this. It caught my attention this week. And this is just from last month. Christianity is not the only way to heaven, prominent Presbyterian pastor says. Kirshner, 45, leads the 5,500-member Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. And she's asked a simple question. Is Christianity the only way to heaven? No, she replies bluntly. And here's a quote. God's not a Christian. I mean, we are. For me, the Christian tradition is the way to understand God in my relationship with the world and other humans. And it's for the way for me to move into that relationship. But I'm not about to say what God can or cannot do in other ways with other spiritual experiences. I really do not overly concern myself with issues of salvation, especially salvation of other folks. That's God's job description, not my own. There's more, but I can't tell you. Or we could move up to New York City, Minneapolis, and listen to Pastor Jay Baker of Revolution Church in New York City. Incidentally, Pastor Jay Baker is none other than the son of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Maybe those of you my age and older would know exactly who those folks are. Interviewed also by the Christian Post. Oh, by the way, he describes himself as an evangelical punk pastor. I agree with one word in that sentence. What bothers me most is that he uses the term evangelical when you hear what he teaches. He's asked, I'll just read to you the question. You mentioned a deconstructing faith. You also seem to deconstruct the traditional, uh, traditional Christian doctrine of the atonement, the belief that Jesus died for the world's sin. In your book, on page 58, you say that, You write uh, that a God who asks us to love our enemies, quote, cannot also require some sort of payment or satisfaction or substitution. Could you please clarify that? We're all ears. Baker says, yes, I'm definitely questioning the atonement and trying to discover how we can see it in a different way. You see, we've got the image of God who needs some sort of flesh, some sort of blood, that needs some sort of vengeance to pay for sin. My experience of a loving God who asked me to love my enemies... That isn't the God that demands something before you're accepted. I think Jesus died because Jesus was inclusive. God is inclusive. I think the idea that of God somehow being separated from us was more man's idea. So the next question was more straightforward. Could you please explain to us plainly, who is Jesus? It's a legitimate question because the interviewer says, if you're putting the atonement aside, how do you explain Jesus to people? That's a wonderful question. To which he has an answer. It's as incoherent as everything else he says. For me, it would be, I still see Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God. I still see Christ as the closest thing to God. In order to deconstruct the atonement theory, really... Uh, It it all comes from the message of Christ and the message of love and grace and acceptance and loving your enemies and forgiving those who persecute you. For me, uh, Christ to me is still in view Messiah. It's just not seen as the way that Christ was necessarily this payment as much as Christ was the full realization of God or at least a glimpse of God. The God we've seen before who smited people or demanded that babies' heads be crushed on rocks, Christ came to say, that's not me. That's not God. Your understanding of God is, uh, uh, is, is an understanding of you. 
Jesus came and kind of turned all that stuff on its head and said, now I want you to turn the other cheek and now I want you to walk the extra mile and hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes. So when Christ came on the scene, Baker says, we see a very different concept and idea of God. Enough of that. One last. Let's visit Hillsong Church in New York City. Pastor Carl Lentz. In an interview with his dear friend Oprah, which you can find in video on YouTube, she asked him simply the question, do you believe that only Christians can be in a relationship with God? Straightforward question. To which he replies, no, no. I believe that when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the way I read that, Jesus said that he's a road marker, he's a map. So I think God loves people so much that whether they accept or reject him, he's still gracious and he's still moving and he's still giving you massive red blinking lights for, uh, for chances to take a right turn when maybe you take a left. But I believe God loves people and that's what this whole gospel is based on. It's love. He goes on to say, our thing is to say, hey, if you allow God, if you bow your knee, admit your need for God, and if you do that, and, and Lord, there's a, there's a moment where my repentance matters, and it's right now, I'm handing over the keys. If you do that, I think the premise of Christianity is looking in the mirror, going, all right, I'm not going to make it. I can't do enough. God, I need you. And in that moment, I believe there's a rescue of salvation that you can't counterfeit in any other way. Now, first of all, I'd have to read that ten times for you to even understand or make any sense of what that gobbledygook was. But I can tell you, in all that gobbledygook, was never the name Jesus Christ ever mentioned. Was never the cross of Christ ever mentioned. Was ever the atonement of Christ ever mentioned. Was ever sin mentioned. And so there was no gospel. You say, well, well, you know, what's the big deal? Why do you want to pick on other pastors? Well, you you think you got it all together? You got your theology right? No, not at all. I'm one of the most compassionate people for pastors in the world because I understand fully how fallible every single one of us are. We are mere men who are called to do a task to which we are completely incapable of doing well, apart from the help of Christ. We are sinful people who get things wrong. I get things wrong. Every pastor gets things wrong. But I'm going to just say this real bluntly because I believe it as bluntly as I'm going to say it. If you're going to call yourself a Christian pastor and stand up and propose to speak for Christ, you can get a lot of things wrong, but you better not get wrong the question, who is Jesus? And you better not get wrong the question, how can a man be saved? If you can't answer those two questions, I don't care under what spotlight, by what interviewer, in what place, then you have no business being a pastor or calling yourself a representative of Christ. Shut up and sit down is what you need to do. There's no ambiguity about who Jesus is. There's no ambiguity about what it means to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Carl Lentz gets that right. He just fails to mention the second part. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. How hard is that? Apparently it's hard for many to get out in our day and age. The atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross has always been and will always be God's only plan for the salvation of men. There's never been another plan. There will never be another plan. And the fact that we can turn in our Bibles to Psalm 22 and we can read the psalmist give a vivid description, perhaps the most vivid description in the text of Holy Scripture of the very 
reality of the things that would be taking place on the cross years and years and years removed from when these events would ever take place is clear evidence to us that God has had one plan in mind all along, that He planned it from all eternity, and He executed it to perfection and the perfect moment in time. And that's what we see in Psalm 22. We see the psalmist David writing, and what we hear from him in this song And what we see is we see the reality of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ that would take place many, many years later. Psalm 22, listen to these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You are... The holy, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you were he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near. And there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like ravening and roaring lion. And poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. For you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, don't be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horn of the wild oxen. We're going to stop there because the psalm turns to praise. Could you imagine a more vivid description of what was actually going to take place that we have recorded in Matthew's Gospel than that? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God, through the pen of David, gave people before the cross a very clear picture of what the death of the Messiah was going to look like. You see his wail from the cross. You see in those first verses there this idea of being surrounded by deadly enemies who want to kill him. Trouble is near. Bulls encompass me. Roaring lions. Dogs encompass me. They encircle me. We look to Matthew chapter 27. And what do we find when we see Jesus hanging on the cross? We find dogs circling Him. We find wild bulls raiding to attack. We find enemies all around. And we find behind the scenes Satan the roaring lion. Gloating over what's taking place as Jesus bleeds and dies. 
the psalmist gives us a picture of what that looks like through the eyes of Jesus. He looks around and all he sees are enemies. All he sees is those who hate him, taunting him, and gloating over what's happening to him. His friends had all left. And there he was, hanging alone, with nothing but enemies all around. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, we see that he was mocked by onlookers, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say things like, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. That's exactly the scene around the foot of the cross. Matthew describes it in verse 39 of 27. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. If I'm not mistaken, that's exactly almost to the word what Psalm 22 told us it would look like. It talks about the psalmist about being physically at the, at the end of our limits, at the end of his limits, being poured out like water. My, my strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I can count all my bones. Can you imagine a more vivid description of what Jesus must have experienced physically on the cross than those descriptions? We know his tongue stuck to his jaws out of thirst because he says from the cross, what? I thirst. He's completely physically spent. He's drained. He's surrounded and running out of strength to fight off the attackers. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, took a reed, and they struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. The physical brutality of the cross is hard for us to even begin to fathom or imagine without seeing it and being there. Isaiah 52, verse 14, is a prophecy. It tells us, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that the children of mankind. The physical brutality of what Christ experienced on the cross. As he was paying the price for our sin, as he was absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved is remarkable. And yet it was foretold to us by the psalmist. The psalmist talks about him being emotionally spent. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast, verse 14 says. I'm a worm and not a man. We're getting inside of the very heart of Christ on the cross. His heart melting within him. His human heart melting. His strength, his emotional energy drained. At rock bottom, a worm. Not even a man. Beyond that, he feels completely alone. 
psalmist writes it this way. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. There's no friends to steady him, to encourage him. Uh, he feels as though everyone has, is, has left him, and those who are left are against him. I mean, it's one thing to deal with all the brutality of the crucifixion, to be physically and emotionally spent, to feel completely alone, and to see no way out, and to feel like you're going down. But it's altogether another thing to be completely alone, to feel abandoned by God. And we know that Jesus felt that way, because he was in a moment. Matthew 27:46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalmist told us that that would happen so long before. You see, Jesus wasn't just shouting random words at the cross. He was quoting Psalm 22. Why would the Father forsake the Son as He hung dying on the cross? Because in those moments, Jesus literally, as Paul wrote, became our sin. He became our sin. The full debt of our sin was credited to His account. Every evil act, every evil thought, every evil word, every evil attitude of mine and yours credited to Him. He willingly bore it in our place And in one of the greatest mysteries of all human history, for a moment, there was a rift. And the Father, in His holiness, turns away from His Son. Because His Son is owning our sin. And dying for it. psalmist continues to turn at verse 22 of the psalm. And he turns on a dime from crying out in pain and despair and utter desperation. In the midst of verse 21, he says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then abruptly says, You have rescued me. Which could really be translated, You have heard me. You have rescued me from the mouth of lions. From the horns of wild oxen. That's what he's crying for. And then he says on a dime, but you've heard me, Lord, you've heard me. You're going to do it. You're doing it. And even in the psalm, we see this moment on the cross where the penalty is paid in full and our sin is discharged. And the Father who is turned away from the Son turns his gaze back toward the Son. And in that moment, the son cries out in his heart, You've heard me. You've accepted the sacrifice. The work that I've come to do is done. The penalty has been paid. The way Jesus expressed it on the cross was, It is finished. All of a sudden, in the midst of all the darkness, a ray ray of divine light blasts through. And the sun says, it is finished. And he dies. Gives up his spirit. And his work was complete. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And in that moment, He did that very thing on the cross. With a body that was brutalized, with blood that was pouring down, the very Son of God paid the debt that we owed. He took our sin that by grace, through faith, in His work in those moments, in complete trust in Him and what He did alone, people like us can be saved. That's the Gospel. That is the good news. That is who Jesus is. That is what He came to do. And that's still who He is. The only Savior, the only way that any man, any woman, of any nation, of any tribe, of any sort, can ever be saved. It is finished. His work is done. Everything that needs to be done for your salvation and mine was done in that moment. The only response is to recognize that we are sinners and that we caused it. That it's our sin, my sin, that was credited to Him for which He died. And to realize that there is no work I could ever, ever do to overcome my sin. But my only hope is to trust in Him and His work on the cross on my behalf. To commit my life to Him for what He's done as an offering of thanksgiving. That's who Jesus is. And that's what it is to be a Christian. And that is the message that we proclaim when we gather around the Lord's table. That there is one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Gospel is a Gospel that proclaims His death in our place. His body, His blood for our sin. And with gratitude that overflows, we gather around the table this morning. Both to remember that in the midst of all the confusing nonsense that we hear around us in our culture and even in the Christian evangelical world, to remember the truth that it's Christ alone that saves and to proclaim that truth together with one another as we share these elements. And so it's our great privilege this morning to bow our heads and close our eyes and to prepare our hearts to gather around this table So I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm going to give you just a moment to search your own heart. Paul writes, book of 1 Corinthians, that he instructs that church and every church that would follow that to gather around this table is no small thing. That we're to do so in a way that's mindful of the body and blood of Christ. That we're to do so in a way that is, at least to the best of our ability, We have hearts that are cleansed from our own sin, that we're not taking these elements lightly or approaching this table lightly. And so I encourage you in these moments to look at your own heart before the Lord. Confess any known sin in your life. Give thanks to the Lord Jesus for what He's done on the cross. That He and He alone has done for you what you can never do. If you're here this morning and You don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
it's important that I tell you that this is an act of worship that is really only for believers, for people who have made that personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. But you should allow these elements to pass by you and not take them if you don't know Christ. For to take them would only be to heap condemnation upon yourself, to dishonor the body and blood of Christ. We know you wouldn't want to do that here this morning. Heavenly Father, it is a remarkable thing to reflect on the one and only plan you've ever had for our salvation, and that's through the giving of your only begotten Son. And Lord Jesus, we come to this moment in time where we, in a physical sort of ceremonial way, we remember you and we proclaim your death alone as sufficient to save. We celebrate that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We pray that your grace would be abundant in our lives. And that in these moments, as we proclaim and remember, you would refresh our hearts and our souls. That you would remind us of the beauty of the gospel. That you would flood our souls by the Spirit of God. That we might relive afresh and anew the glory of what you've done for us. And that we might be committed more than ever to taking the true gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Forgive us of our sins this morning, Lord Jesus. Cleanse our hearts that we might take these elements in purity. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.